You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. All right, hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. Uh, we're doing another coach's corner. I think this is like lucky number seven or something like that um, with Ryan and Zach. And today we're going to kind of cover the bench press the same way that we did with the, uh, the squat last month. Um, and we'll kind of set it up in a similar fashion. So we'll talk about like we'll start um, like with setting up on the bench, um, like foot position, grip width and how we kind of determine those things, and we'll just kind of work our way uh, through the lift. Sound good? Sure. All yep. right. We'll, we'll, we'll start with you, Ryan. Let's talk about, like, how you go about setting somebody's feet and hands on the bar for the for the bench press. All right. Um, I mean, you know, thinking, figuring from a USAPL standpoint uh, where we have to be flat-footed, uh, trying to get their feet back as far as at the beginning, at least as far as they feel comfortable. I'm not worried about really cranking them into position too much. Um, just get, making sure that they get, get that their feet back enough and, uh, still have their heels down. Um, really working on trying to get up on their traps, get their shoulders back and, uh, just feel like a general sense of tightness on the bench. I tell everyone that bench should feel probably like one of the most uncomfortable lifts. Um, and then just looking at their grip, I think, I feel like almost, almost all new people come in with too close of a grip. And then I feel like anyone that's been powerful for a little while has probably gone out to max grip pretty quickly. So usually I'll start people just trying to find out um, where they line up well, where their wrists are stacked over their elbows and try to get that position um, and work there. And then over time, We'll work on some other things to get them a little, you know, a little bit better positioning. Um, you know, to try to get their arch a little bit higher, uh, to, and to maintain the arch, or maybe out to widen out the grip even uh, to like the fully legal grip. But at the beginning, like I said, I just want to get like a general sense of tightness, uh, get those shoulders back, and get the hands in a nice alignment for pressing. So, w- w- do you care about like how much the toes turn out? No, um, I've got people here that range from. Uh, their legs are basically hugging the bench and their feet are straight ahead. Uh, and I've got someone like patience that I, I joke with her. I don't even know how she turns her ankles out like that. Her toes are basically pointed straight to the side. Um, and she's a good bencher. So like it, it you know, whatever I, if, if they're tight and it feels right for them, I'm usually okay with that. Um, and over time, do you try to get everybody out to like that max um, with for grip or do you, does it kind of vary? Um, yes and no. I, for, for most people, um, we will, uh, move it out eventually. Um, I try to take our time doing that just to make sure that they're ready for that wide grip and their strength is built up for it. And, um, generally what I've seen is at least on our women, a lot of times we've actually brought the grip back in a little bit afterwards, you know, as, as they've gotten stronger, their grips come back in a little bit. Um, but right away, we don't go max grip. Uh, but over time, we'll, we, we definitely will move it out. Okay. Zach, what, what about you? Um, so I've got basically two situations that uh, I will revert to or go to with uh, new people coming to me. The first situation is if I have someone that has come to me that 
um, has been coached before, maybe have some powerlifting experience, uh, and maybe is frustrated because of a lack of progress. In that situation, what I'll do is examine some of their training videos first. And this is different than the squat, actually. I will ask for a video, if they have it, of their previous two competition PRs in the bench. And then what I will do is begin their program as long as we have uh, at minimum 12 weeks before their next competition. And I will implement them nothing but the three month bench, both on their competition day or competition uh, uh, bench day, as well as their accessory uh, day where we do, it's usually our day four, whenever we do uh, another bench workout uh, for a different mesocycle purpose than what it the three month bench. That's the feet in the air, flat back. Correct. So, uh, I will even go another step further, uh, to be extremely specific the way it was taught to me. And I know we talked about this, I think on the very first coach's corner, I love this was, it really has been a tremendous game changer for nearly every single one of our athletes, especially the ones that have plateaued. This has been the single exercise I can point to, which has been a major breakthrough for us. So they lay on the bench. They will go to their femurs are vertical. The tibia fibula complex uh, lower leg is horizontal. The hardest thing for most of our athletes to learn not to do is cross their legs. Uh, I tend with my athletes, I tend to be a little more strict about that because I feel as though if we get in the habit of crossing our legs, it kind of turns the feet or the hips outward in a slight to a slight degree. I don't know if, if you're following what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Cross those lower, cross yeah. the ankles. It tends to open the hips up, and I don't want it. I want them to be as uncomfortable as possible. So what I'll do is I'll have them put their feet, their lower legs, ankles, feet straight. Uh, tibia fibular, uh, lower leg is, is, is horizontal. The scaps are protracted. The back is flat. And the biggest difference, I think, between when I see other people doing this on uh, the gram and other social media is that our posterior or our, our pelvis is posteriorly tilted. In other words, the bottom part of our sacrum is supposed to be off the bench. So our abs are engaged and actually posteriorly tilting our pelvis. We've got active uh, core engage uh, for our anterior core. The scaps are protracted. Uh, The arms are uh, basically doing a really long stroke. And what I'll typically do is if, if the athlete is already at max legal grip, I'll have them kind of come in to what I call a moderate grip, which is kind of where their pinkies are on the ring. If the athlete has not typically been training at a max legal grip, then I will have them split the difference between wherever their current competition grip is and a, uh, a narrow grip. And for most people, that narrow grip is really their first index finger on the inside of the knurling on the smooth. Uh, so I will have them get uh, the midpoint between wherever their competition grip is and that narrow grip. 
And that is their three-month bench position. So my hybrid grip, uh, protracted scaps, uh, the rib cage is down, the abs are engaged, then the legs are, are up and basically as unstable as the surface as possible. And again, I, just like I'll give credit where credit to do, this is uh, something that we took, uh, that Mike Zawinski and I took when we were coaching at Northeastern from the uh, from uh, athletic trainers from the Boston Sports Medicine Group. This is how that they did their rehabs for their shoulder injuries and their pec injuries. And that mantra that that the they taught us was, you know, train long, compete short. And I think that there's definitely something to be said for no, we should be we should be training short, but that's kind of your peaking, your comp prep phase. But as far as when we're first starting out, that is the 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 stance and setup that we use uh, that three month position. And that is what we start with for depending upon the lifter, their experience level, how far away from the meat we are, how long we're in that hypertrophy meso phase. Anywhere from four, four weeks to eight or nine weeks. Why do you start there, Zach? Well, for the particular case that I'm talking about, this is if somebody has had some success and has reached a plateau or isn't getting to that next level and they're looking for a new coach and that's usually why they come to me. I started two new people since our last podcast and and both of them were frustrated with a lack of progress that they had uh, with their previous coach and so that's the first thing I'm going to do is we're going to work on those primary movers and I believe the three-month bench the three-month bench really does a great job at addressing all of the prime movers so we really focus a lot on the the the, the pecs and the and the triceps and the anterior deltoids usually in the reverse order it's more like triceps anterior deltoids and then pecs last and really train those primary movers to be as strong as possible without any core stability the secondary benefit is that it also trains our anterior core and any asymmetries that we've got going on there, you know, rectus abdominis or, or internal, inter, internal external abdominal obliques really play a large part in stabilizing our core and in addition to our rib cage. So we have found that by doing that, it has done so much to address the kind of uh, muscle weakness and, you know, I don't like to use the dirty word, but it is muscle asymmetry. We have people that come in that have reached plateaus and the primary reason that I found in our cases for our athletes, why they have these plateaus is because they hid those muscle asymmetries right, left, or muscle imbalances between the primary movers by increasing their arch, increasing their rib cage elevation, uh, increasing their scapular retraction, and trying everything that they can to reduce the stroke distance of the bar path rather than trying to actually address the problem itself. So we feel like by doing what we've done, we, we, we force them to address those issues. And then when we go back to training in that comp setup with the competition arch, competition, uh, you know, uh, scapular position, rib cage position, breathing, all of that, it really pays off dividends. Yeah, like I like all like so when I do the when I use that infant press, uh, we always use that one close grip, and then I, I use like a feet up photo press, uh, which I'll use more with like that medium and wide grip. 
and then a lot of like just alternating grips with like Larson press for those same reasons. Like I think just building that upper body strength just goes a long way, right? If you can do it without your legs with a longer range of motion and you get stronger in those positions, once you put your feet down and you shorten that range of motion a little bit, it just becomes a lot easier. Um, I guess I start people out just like a little, a little bit differently. I used to, you know, try to get everybody out where they were comfortable grip wise as wide as possible. Um, the same as Ryan, like we tuck our feet back as far as I can get in their feet flat. Um, I don't really care which way their toes point as long as their legs are tight and arches staying solid. Um, but I'll change up everybody's grip. So they might do in the first block, we might even hit a close grip, medium grip, and wide grip bench press. And just like, I'll just watch them lift for the first four weeks. Like, see where it breaks apart. You know, sometimes seeing the wide grip bench press or close grip bench press, the elbow's flaring too much or something. And like, we'll just kind of target those weaknesses in the, in the next block or whatever. Um, but I kind of let them just kind of figure it out on their own with all those like different grips in the beginning. Um, I used to put everybody out on, you know, like I was saying, like as wide as possible, we'd bench three to four times a week and stuff. And I think in a lot of cases, what had happened there was we were neglecting those, the delts and the triceps a lot. Like the pecs were getting stronger, but nobody was like capable of grinding out a bench press, uh, so to speak. And once we started mixing grips, picking the feet up, building those other muscles, it's worked out a lot better. Um, in that case. And when I say wide, wide grip, I'm talking 81 centimeters. So like index finger on the rings, medium grip, we use like a 60 to 65 centimeter grip. So it's like pinkies on the rings are just inside. Um, and close grip is about a thumbs distance from where the knurling and the, uh, and the smooth are. Um, let's get into like the technique of the bench press a little bit. Um, so let's talk like about, like common errors that we see in the technique um, maybe amongst like beginners in the, or like even just like newer people that, that come to us or whatever um, like common technical things and maybe ways that we uh, we fix them and we'll start with you Ryan um, I mean African you know through setup I think that probably the biggest technical mistake I'll see with, with relatively new people is they're touching very high um, and I'm not talking that we need to talk you know all the way down like uh, you know, you think of some like the multiply guys where they just, it's just tuck, tuck, tuck. But, um, you know, getting those, getting the elbows in maybe like a 45 degree angle, finding the right, the right positioning. So everything's kind of stacked on top of each other. Um, that's my big one right off the bat. Like I said, everyone I see that's, that's new to it is usually touching much higher on their chest and it's just a hard position to press from. Um, and then I think uh, keeping their knuckles to the ceiling. Um, that's another one I, I, a lot of people don't know about wrist wraps. Um, and I won't put them in wraps right away. I'll try to get them at least to get their knuckles to the ceiling and get used to that feeling of having the bar in that path instead of just letting their wrists go limp back. Um, and then just letting, um, the wraps do the work. Um, but I think those are the two big, uh, critiques that I make right off the bat. Um, and between those and getting the elbows, uh, wrist and elbow stack, usually we can add weight to the bar immediately. They just feel better right away. What about, uh, you Zach? Now we're, what context are we talking about at the beginning or? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let, uh, it doesn't matter. Like what you see is usually the most, you know, like we see like knees caving in in a squat and chest falling forward is 
kind of like two of the most technical, biggest technical breakdowns in the squat, like similar issue when it comes to the, um, the bench. For people with some experience, I think for me, it's a tie. I would agree with Ryan that at least tied for first is the elbow to shoulder angle on the descent of a bench. I think that the vast majority of people who have limited time in powerlifting uh, take far too obtuse, if you will, of an angle of their elbow shoulder angle uh, than is proper. And of course, as we all know, uh, that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the uh, supraspinous fossa that the supraspinatus rotator cuff muscle goes through. And that causes all kinds of problems with possible impingement, not to mention possible supraspinatus rotator cuff tears. And and that's, in my opinion, back in the day, I think that's maybe one of the reasons why powerlifting and competition bench pressing got such a bad name. Well, benching is bad for your shoulders. And somewhere in the last 10 years, this phantom rumor got started and it created a lot of momentum. And we, we had this full-blown rumor going around uh, on the internet. And then people started doing bench presses where the bar doesn't touch their chest. Essentially, spoto pressing became like popular because that was the way that bench pressing was quote unquote supposed to be done because touching your chest is bad for your shoulders. Well, that's like saying like squatting to the point where your knees touch on the way up is bad for your is bad for your squatting is bad for your, your knees. Well, it is if you squat like that. And in benching, in benching is bad, definitely bad for your shoulders if you bench like that with too obtuse of an angle. Uh, that's probably the number one thing. And so we do a lot of uh, – that's why, just like I said on the last podcast, that's why as a powerlifting coach, actually asking for very, very specific angles when our athletes send us videos is so crucial because then we can see the angle of the, the elbow sh- shoulder angle and relatively – speaking can correct that um, from behind and front and overhead Uh, that's number one and then I would say number two particularly if the athlete has not been competing for a very long time or the other big thing is if they're heavier weight class so 84 84 plus or i would say 120 120 plus the pervasive nature of a heavier weight class lifting heavier weights on bench seems to be that it's okay to literally bounce the bar (laughs) off your chest and i don't really mean we do see it with some of those the lighter weight classes but particularly the heavier weight classes both genders it seems to be generally accepted that trying to see how much you can turn your sternum into a trampoline uh, (laughs) is like okay so we're very again on our team we're very strict you know all three of us the coaches you know Ivan and Richard and myself are very big on making sure that touch and go literally does mean touch and go and then we'll even go so far as to telling our athletes when we're first starting out hey What we want to see is, you know, the touch and go is what we want. And then if you really want to impress us on each set, pause the last rep. Because one of the questions that I get, particularly from some athletes that come come over from other coaching companies, uh, is that they'll have them pause every single rep. And, you know, I don't know if you guys do that or not, but I actually discourage it because I feel like, 
it can belabor a lot of the progress, the potentiation for progress in strength and in power uh, by causing or forcing the athlete to pause every single rep. So we actually only ask them to do that on the very last rep of each set if they want to show us that they have like complete control and command of the uh, workload. So that's our little, I don't know, it's our thing that we do. But uh, th- those are the top two things that I see as, mis- as like mistakes in the bench that we like to correct right away. Do you have everybody comp pause, Ryan? Uh, we generally do it on the first rep. Uh, and then I kind of oh. give them, I give them their choice after that. Um, if that, if they want, so I've got a few people that pause every rep. Um, I've got probably the majority of people will pause the first one. Um, and then after that it depends on how heavy it is. Uh, if it's a lighter working set, they might, they might, uh, pause more. If it's heavier, they'll probably go more touch and go. Um, I do have a few people that are just, the pause hurts their bench so much. <clears throat> that I do make them pause more reps just to, get more, just to get more practice with it. Why do you think it hurts their bench so much? Because I have some people who are similar like that too. I think the biggest thing for a lot of people is, at least from what I've seen here, is like when they, when they pause it, they lose, some, they lose a little bit of tension, and it's usually people that have a pretty good arch. Um, if they're a little bit of a flat back bencher, the, it doesn't seem to affect them as much. But someone who's got a pretty big arch, when they pause, they seem to lose that, that arch a little bit, and they lose some tension, and then they go to press, and they're actually like, they're moving away from the bar as they're pressing it, so the press becomes that much longer. And that's when it usually looks like they need more help. So I, I will tell them that I want them to pause every rep um, just to work on it and stay tight. Uh, but like I said, for most people, it's pause the first and then go from there. Your call. With that, with that person getting flattened out a little bit on their arch, um, do you use longer pauses with them ever? Often, yeah. Um, I, I really like writing uh, five-second pauses. Um, which everyone wants to kill me for. Um, but I remember reading years ago, it was like, you know, the, the eccentric, um, the stretch shorting cycles killed at about four seconds. So I was like, cool, let's do five seconds. Um, and at that point, it just, everyone's like, man, you just got to muscle it up. I said, yeah, you got to, you got to show like your actual strength. Um, and we'll do that pretty often. And just, you know, you never know when to meet where, you know, maybe the head judges falling asleep and you get a three second command. And if you're not used to that, we're in trouble. Now I said, we're not going to practice that every time, but at least be prepared for it. I was reading in a Chico's book about average press times at Russian nationals. They literally went from 0.4 seconds to 1.8 seconds. Damn. Like that is a giant range of press commands. Obviously things could go, you know, the bar could, could have been moving around a little bit, which led to longer right uh, press commands and stuff but that is a very wide range um when when i worked with him i i was supposed to comp pause every single repetition that i did and the idea behind it was like the timing of the press right so um you know it's that technical aspect of things and like for me with my lifters if they can pause every rep we will but i'd rather them touch and go than go down and wait and there are times where we'll go up and wait where I know they won't be able to pause it and they'll just, they'll just touch and go just so that they can get used to handling those heavier weights. I definitely feel that there needs to be like a balance between um, the two of them. I know for me, if I touch and go, like I, I don't touch and go bench press that often. 
And when I do it, it feels so foreign to me. It actually feels um, at times. And I feel like even on multiple reps that like I just lose position and like bringing it down, it just, it, it feels off. Um, but if I actually like take a second on my chest, it just, sometimes it feels easier. Um, so I guess there might be something to say for it uh, when, it, when it comes to that. Uh, Zach, um, do you care if the lifters keep their wrist straight? This is one of those that is especially hard to do in my position. Both of you have a pretty significant advantage by working with most of your athletes in person. So generally speaking, I will make it a point to say, hey, let's try and keep your wrists neutral. It's, it's important, that, and there are all kinds of reasons why biomechanically and, and just long-term health in general why is why it's helpful um equip bench is a little bit different but generally speaking if i have not worked with them in person yet it's one thing that i tell them to put in the back of their mind and try to make all attempts to um uh to fix ahead of time but once I get the opportunity to work with them in person, uh, after maybe going through a cycle or if I invite them down to do a training camp at, in here in Florida or I travel up to see them or visiting uh, other places, then I will work with them in person and actually go over the importance of the neutral grip and the difference between you know a neutral grip and a Japanese grip and see their capability of doing so and then showing them how to wrap their wrists with wrist wraps correctly so that all the extra vertical force on their carpals don't don't cause it's going to be uncomfortable as anything learning new is but it's not until i get the opportunity to work with them in person that i place significant emphasis on it uh, if that makes any sense. So it is something that I tell them to keep in mind if I'm working with them exclusively online, but then when they have the chance to uh, work with them in person and I get the chance to show them, fix their wrists, talk about wrist straps and, and biomechanical changes, especially if they're equip lifters, um, then after that point is when I'll call attention to it uh, moving forward on their videos. I used to be a lot more like strict with the straight wrists, like putting the bar deep in the hand, wrapping the, wrapping the wrist tight but now i kind of like for some lifters i feel when they actually like bend back their wrists a little bit it just it keeps the bar in a better place when it's on their chest where if they keep their wrists a little bit more neutral they end up touching too low um so depending on the lifter sometimes i just kind of let it i let it go and it seems they seem to do better in those positions it's, it's definitely an outlier i think with my group the majority of them are benching with neutral wrists uh, but there's a few of them and they tend to be ones with longer arms and the inability to get a big arch um, it seems to work a little bit better using that like Japanese grip to kind of touch in the appropriate spot on their chest and uh, and get it up um, I actually got my hands on a uh, a video that was done from Kodama and there were like some interesting like points about uh this um, pulling up my notes that I had on here, but uh, so for like legs, um, one of the things that he was recommending for is that the shins stay vertical. So if you put them back too far, mm -hmm. um, 
So if you try to stay your legs too far back, you stretch and tighten up your quads too much. Scapula won't be able to move. This made zero sense to me. I'm just, I want to hear what you guys have to say about this. Um, so the best position for you is to have your shins straight down um, so that the problem with your, your scapula and your arch don't break down basically and you don't lose tightness. Um, I don't know how many big benchers we have out there that don't have their feet at least a little bit behind their knees um, or how many like vertical shin bench presses we actually see of like lighter weight lifters in particular. Um, but definitely want to hear what you guys think about that. We'll start with you, Ryan. Um, I don't really understand the scapula part. Um, yeah, yeah, me either. That's but I know a, one thing for us will be, especially for our lighter lifters, uh, we'll definitely try to crank back as much as we can and keep the butt on the bench. Uh, that's a big thing is that I often find if they're getting their legs so, so far back is that when they try to use the leg drive, instead of driving back into the bar, they're driving up and they end up pushing their butt off the bench. That, that'll that be when I'll have them slide their feet farther forward usually um, and probably get to maybe not vertical, but a pretty close to vertical shin at that point uh, to make sure that they can drive uh, like into the front of their shoe and try to push back into the bench instead of just going straight up. But I don't find that to be that common. I don't think we need to do it that often. Um, and like some of the, the bigger lifters, I mean, uh, I was talking about Tim before Tim benches like four, like four forty, so like 200 kilos. Um, and his legs are like, he's probably actually less than vertically. I mean, he's probably got his feet a little, out a little bit in front of him, but he's also about a 320 pound lifter. So it's a little bit different positioning for him than it is for, you know, 135 pounds female that's arching at times. Yeah, I, th I think too for the bigger lifters, like their belly is their arch kind of, you know, it shortens yeah. the range of motion for them so they can get away with it a little bit different. Um, what about you, Zach? Do you think you can tuck your feet too far back? Do you see that to be a common issue? Um, I'm going to blame the lack of clarity on what it is that the explanation that you gave the author, the lack of explanation, because there are the, the height of the bench has a very small margin of difference to, in, in the IPF of what's legal. However, we as humans come in all different shapes and sizes from as small as Mikey Coons to as large. And the largest guy I know is Will Lyons, who competed out of um, Rhode Island. And he was like six, eight or six, nine. So the fact to create a, a rule of generality to say that bringing your shins behind your hips can destabilize your scaps, if that's what I understand correctly, what you said. Yeah, I mean, th this was like, obviously, it had to be transcribed, like, from a different language. So there could have been something lost in the translation. Um, but yeah, it makes no sense. I, I'm assuming that that's, if that's what he's saying, it doesn't really make any sense. And there's no science to back it up. And the only science that I could think of contradicts it, because the same piece of equipment using the same measurements cannot at any, not in any possible way be equally applied to everyone. That's why we have all different kinds of bench setups. That's why we have all different kinds of arches, all different kinds of bar paths. There are some things we all agree on that work well for everyone, but I would say that to say that a rule of generality that the feet shouldn't be behind the 
the the hips and would destabilize the scaps. I I have, uh, I guess it would be two words for them, and that's Japan and Chinese Taipei. Yeah, I mean, like when I so like I tuck my feet back as far as I can, and when I actually like push on my legs, I feel it like pins my scapulas to the bench. Where if I lose like tightness in my lower half, I feel it's harder to do that. Like in my feet are behind my knees, so like I was I was curious on how like you know, and you see a lot of like in other federations, like people tuck their feet way the fuck back, and like with the heels up up in the air, and they get that big arch and like. You know they're driving their heels down, even though they're up in the air like that. But like they're they're pressing a lot of weight in the in those positions, and it didn't make a lot of sense to me. I actually found this this one piece I found pretty interesting because like I've experienced this um, myself. Um, he was talking about setting up for the bench press. How a lot of people tend to rely on getting their their back tight with their hands already gripping the bar, and he actually recommends that you use something that's going to be like in the same position you would bench press. So maybe the poles of the bench at like the same height. So it's mimicking that position that you would be when you lower the bar to your chest and it will help you get your back um, tighter for a competition bench press than gripping upwards. And like me personally, I can't start with gripping the bar first. It just feels off. Um, I was just curious on what you guys thought on that, on that point as well. And we'll start with you again, Ryan. I mean, kind of like what Zach was saying there too. Like I, I think whatever kind of works for the person is going to be the more important thing. Um, we were joking about this the other night, actually, just because we've got a few people here that like when they set up, they, you know, they shoot their head behind the bench and like slide all the way back down to so they're really up on their, on their uh, shoulder blades, uh, up on their traps and really get their shoulder blades back. And then you've got someone like me where um, I start just a couple inches behind the bar, basically. And I grab the bar just to pull myself into place. And I'm not a big archer, so that's part of it. But it just it's enough for me to get onto my traps and get my shoulder blades down and feel like I'm locked into place. Um, so, yeah, I think like like what Zach was saying, and, we, and we've talked about this with, with other – and we've talked about this in several times before. There's general things that we need to see happen for the lift to be right, but everyone's so different that – outside of those few generalities, like what works for them is more important to me than what is supposed to work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, I mean, we have a few people that grab the bench, uh, like grab the uprights and, and set themselves up like that. And then I know we have someone that when they do that, it hurts their elbow a lot. So they don't, they tried it and hated it. And I was like, all right, don't do it anymore. So, you know, while, so- while you're on the subject, Ryan, and I hate to interrupt you, but like, okay. since you're the one that's addressing this, why don't we talk about, and I know that she doesn't train with you anymore, but she's a really great example of how you worked to develop somebody's arch without using that sort of mentality or, or that sort of approach. Can you talk about how you developed Ayla Thurston's like ridiculous arch, not by, not by following that, those, either one of those rules at all? Yeah, I mean, like, with Ayla, uh, I mean, she was already, she'd already had a very mobile position in in bench, so she'd already was able to get into a pretty serious arch. Um, The big thing we did for her was just, she'd had some lower back issues with, that were stemming from other things. We got her out of back pain, and she was able to arch more, and it was just getting her tight just getting to the point where like 
you know, if, if someone were to shove you on the bench, you're not going to move anywhere. Um, and she was, we moved her, I mean, her grip was already pretty wide, but we moved her all the way out um, to, you know, as, legal, as far out legally as you could go. And how, um, how much of a difference did that one change alone make in her bench stroke? I mean, when she, when she started with me, she was, she'd hit 225 touch and go in the gym. Um, and then the last, uh, the last training she did with me, she benched, um, 253 in a, um, in a meet, in a meet which set the junior American record bench for 72 kilo. And it was like, it was an easy third, but we just wanted to make sure we got the record, but she probably could have hit 259 or 264 that day. So, I mean, we're talking in like, uh, maybe 20, uh, probably like about a 20 week block. We added, uh, you know, 35 plus pounds. Okay. And on an already, already high level bench. You know? And I was talking about, I was back that's big. I was talking about the change in her grip combined oh, with how yeah. tight she already was. Cause you said you moved her out. Yeah. I mean, she was already, like I said, she was already pretty close to the um, legal grip already. And then we just worked on really getting her wrist set. So she would, grab the bar and really crank her wrist into position. So she was as wide as you could legally be. Um, and I mean, her range of motion, if you watch video is, uh, I don't know, three inches. Um, and like, and just being able to, to crank her wrist in that position actually helped a lot. Uh, Not to mention bringing her grip out. It doesn't matter. But this is what I, I say people don't understand is if you're say, and we all know if we even think about bar anatomy, if you're at your, say your, your ring finger is on the ring, right? So you've only got two more fingers to go on either side until you're at full max legal grip. If you just go from ring finger to index finger, that alone is probably three to maybe, depending on the size of your hand, three to four inches total in grip. Right. Width. But that can, that can reduce your overall bar path by two inches. Right. That's a lot. Right. Especially if two inches represents 30 to 40% of your overall bar path distance in the first place. Well, it's, it's that much less work. Right. 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 It allows you to train it more to, you know, and yeah, you're saving energy. It's like, you know, it's, I, it's a sumo deadlift compared to a conventional deadlift kind of. You, right. And, and I will say, I like going a little off topic. One of the things that we did with her though, was I had her train with close grip and full range of motion a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, we did, like you said, uh, Zach, like the, you know, the, the infant press, we did close grip pressing. We did, um, lots of feet up work. We did incline bench. We did a lot of stuff that was full range um, because I wanted to make sure that if I said, if she lost some of her arch uh, during a press, like, it, you know, maybe just lost some at uh, thoracic extension that she could still press from a longer position if necessary. Um, you know, and in nationals this year, she um, retook the junior American record. She had 264. I mean, like as a, 20 year old 72 264 that's insane um so it's huge it's huge yeah that's a huge match i mean that's that's crazy um so i mean like you know and, and i said she she does have one of the better arches that you're going to find uh but moving that grip out and like so really really teaching that way of like grabbing the bar with the index finger on the ring and really cranking the wrist into it you could see 
over a period of a, of a couple months how much her bench changed. And like I said, I mean, I don't think we added – you know, 30 to 35 pounds of strength in that time. I think we just maximized her leverages and got her in a little bit better position. I think we got a little bit stronger, but uh, I think, and just because I was the, I was one of the people that was watching so ever since Orlando, really, whenever you came up to me and you said, you need to watch this girl, she's going to be one of the people that we're going to need to see uh, moving forward is going to be an elite lifter in USA powerlifting. So I did, I've watched her training all year. Now, the last few months before she stopped working with you, I would say the biggest thing that I saw with her going from a 225 to a 253 uh, bench, I would say, yes, maximizing leverages, Ryan, yes, but you don't, I don't think you give, your, you give yourself enough credit, so I'll give you the credit. I think her technique cleaned up a lot. Yes, she maximized leverages, but when you can get your grip as perfect as possible so that you can get every last millimeter of leverage so that you're, if you can think about it, like your hands are, are, are medially deviated, right? So you're kind of doing that Japanese right. medial deviation and that if you get at your arch as good as possible and then go even further by learning how to hold your breath during both the eccentric and concentric portion of a maximal bench, right? And maximizing your leg drive so that you get a little bit of push after the press command, that's, that's polishing technique. And that was probably one of the biggest things that I saw uh, change with her during her training videos leading up to that last uh, meet with you where she benched that junior American record like that. Her technique was drastically improved. Yes, she got stronger. Yes, she learned to maximize leverages, but the technique mm -hmm. was so clean. I mean, she does not have the technique of a quote unquote junior lifter. Right. So I think, you know, somebody with a big arch too, how you were talking about um, how you did a lot of like full range and different grips and stuff too. So like when we get that big arch like that, like the way that the, the pec fibers actually line up to push the weight, you're kind of only hitting it at one angle, right? So if you're looking for like true muscular development, and I think this may even be more important for females than it is for males, like getting them flat and changing those grips. And, you know, this is probably why you see so much success with the incline press too. You start hitting it at different angles and you like really develop those pecs. And then obviously like the front delts and the triceps are extremely important as well, especially for a big arch too. Cause it's a lot of, it's a lot of triceps. Um, but I think like moving it around and changing all those different angles just like really builds a, a, a well-rounded bench press or on top of the, the good technique. I don't think that can, um, that, that can be forgotten about. I think that's, that's extremely important there too. Um, and like, this is kind of like what I've like noticed with, especially my female lifters, like just moving stuff around like that and getting them out of their arch. I tell Alyssa all the time, the strength of her bench press is her arch. So she has to do like more of the other stuff, but the, the stronger they get in the other stuff, once they get into those, like more, those better mechanical positions and stuff like the weight just flies. Um, and I think that's, that's often forgot, forgotten. And I know like there are some lifters out there with huge arches and huge bench presses, but they can't bench press shit with a flat back. And I guarantee you if they could improve that, their bench press, their competition bench press would have, like it doesn't make sense for it not to get better. Right. Um, 
So maybe we can like, that's actually, I want to, before we get into like training the bench press and like those scenarios and stuff, I do want to bring up leg drive. Cause I think this is something that gets often, I think it's often misunderstood and I don't even think everybody agrees on, on what it is. Um, I know. So, you know what, I'm just going to ask this question. Like, what do you think leg drive does in, you know, do you think it actually like helps create this like kinetic force that somehow goes up through the body and like helps push the weight, just hold the arch? Um, maybe just discuss leg drive, Ryan. I, uh, I generally talk about, I think leg drive is one of the hardest things to learn. Um, I find that like lifters, uh, when they focus on it for too long, get, they get pretty discouraged with it because it never feels right for a long time. Uh, but once they get it, it's like an immediate, like, Oh, there it is. And like, and you feel that much stronger. Um, I think if you can do it right and you can stay tight on the chest, I think it helps definitely get that propulsion off the chest, the first couple inches. And, you know, hopefully if you're strong enough and you can drive through more things cause the bar is moving better. Um, but I think as a lot of people are either in a kind of a weird position and, uh, they they're not getting that. Like I said, I like to think of driving like into the front of the shoes and driving back. So the force of the bar, uh, force of the leg drive is pushing the bar back into the rack, um, instead of just straight up. Um, and then the timing of it, I think is one of the harder things for most people is if you, if you do it, you know, a little too late, then it doesn't really have that same effect. If you're already kind of pressing hard and then the leg drive is there, I don't think it has that same carryover. Um, I think if you could time it, I say like that pop off the chest is that much better. And then hopefully you can drive through whatever weight is there. But um, I generally don't even mention it early on in training. Um, I just want to get everything going on the upper body, right? First, get them tight and get them moving. And then as they have that stuff down, then let's start to add in the legs. Cause like I said, I find that people just really struggle with that more than anything. So, I mean, if you guys have anything to help with that, please tell me. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you go, Zach first. That's uh, I'm sitting here listening. I, when, when Ryan started talking, the first person I thought of, I'm not sure Kevin, I think this was probably before you got, involved but ryan do you remember matt baller yeah he was the first person i thought of because i remember matt baller benching at um in denver at yeah. the raw nationals there it hit like then, 585 or something like that right well the, he hit the number that was pretty good it was like 560 something and then he went to the worlds the next year or that, I guess the following year when he qualified for it, and he hit uh, 260.5, which is 574 on on bench. And and he, he he's a big dude. Man, Matt is, what, by the way, side note, one of the nicest guys ever. If you ever get a chance to talk to him, please do. He's a super nice guy. Um, but, like, at, you know, at his size, most people let that, most guys will let that bar sink way into their chest and then try and maximize their leg drive pushing out. Matt, Matt touches. I mean, you think about 574 pounds coming down to touch your chest. If you could just, if you could just, uh, you know, uh, touch that thing like a, a feather. Well, that in my opinion is wasting energy because there's so much energy being wasted, slowing that bar down to the point where it barely touches. And then you're waiting for a pause. You're burning a tremendous amount of energy, but Matt comes down. It's a solid touch. I would not call it a cave at all. And then, his world record bench uh, is pretty is pretty incredible. He does not line up 
with his feet way behind his hips. They're pretty much his shins are vertical. And then as soon as he gets that press command, he pushes. uh, So when I say back, what I mean is, and this is the way that I teach it, the feet go forward. His toes try to go through the front of his shoes. And if you have that kind of setup where your shin angle is vertical or more forward than that, you know, with big guys like him, uh, I've got a couple of, of guys that are, that are, have that kind of build like Dan Tackett's of Illinois or Justin Isaacs of Delaware. Uh, you know, those guys, I will actually have them try and tripod out their legs into away from the bench and kind of angled out about 30 to 15 to 45 degrees out so that they feel more comfortable pushing their feet forward and outward, kind of like a, kind of like a sumo uh, deadlift. And, you know, I don't claim to have the magic answer as to what creates that force, whether it's a kinetic energy or not. But what I do know is that it it is more vertical force created than if they were a paraplegic. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I think- and. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I don't have the answers, but I would say if you watch Matt Baller's world championship bench, if you watch, uh, you know, uh, Ray's, Ray's a little bit of an enigma because Ray lets that bar go down pretty far into his chest. Uh, but like any of the other like world champions, uh, if you watch Will Garcia do it, if you watch uh, any of the other you know, the big benchers, you'll see that leg drive. And I, I don't think it's a rebounding effect. In other words, I don't think it's the opposite of a heave where, uh, you know, you're actually pushing with the body upward. I, I just think it's, it's a, it's a increase in vertical reaction force. And that is created through the feet. Well, I think like for sure, right. We know that the feet on the ground and applying pressure like that, that's our arch, right? It holds the integrity of the arch. Like if you lose that pressure on your feet, you're definitely going to get flattened. Um, I'm not so sure that like force gets transferred to the bar, but one thing that like, I remember Shiko saying was the timing of the leg drive, like you were saying that. And he also mentioned how this, this was the difference between elite benchers and novice benchers was the actual leg drive component. And it's by far, I think the hardest thing to teach people. And in the beginning, I just tell them to get stable. Like don't even try to try to get any leg drive. Like let's just get stable first. And then once they're capable of being stable, we'll bring like leg drive into it. But he talked about, he called it, you know, again, this is like in translation, but like a mechanical pulse. Like when you do what you guys are saying, like feet through the front of the shoes, the QI uses drive your hips towards your head. Like when you do that, it actually raises the chest a little bit. So that's probably why like those bigger guys who drop it in, like when they get that little bit of a leg drive, it's actually pushing the chest up into the bar. So it's helping getting it, getting it going and picking up some speed. Um, So it may help move the bar just from the way that it helps push the chest up. And if you actually watch the videos and just watch their torso, when they're actually getting that leg drive, you can see the chest rise. Um, do you guys have any of your lifters actually let the bar sink in or is everybody soft touch? Uh, we have a couple that sink. Um, again, like I said, if, if you feel pretty comfortable doing it and it's going well for you, I'm not going to, I'm not going to suggest a big change like that. Um, if you're doing it and it's not going well, then we'll change. 
but um, I mentioned Tim before. Uh, like I said, Tim mentions about 200 kilos, and, and he sinks. Um, but again, he's a bigger lifter, so that, that's part of it. Um, I don't think any of our... I don't think any of our smaller lifters do it. Um, like with, uh, you know, when Zach was saying before, 84, 84 plus, 120, 120 plus. Uh, I know Kate... Uh, she, Kate's an 84. Uh, she likes to sink too. Um, what's interesting exactly, like, so she's starting to play around with a little single ply stuff. And, uh, she was working with, uh, Sophie Varis recently and Sophie kept calling it the pump and dump and said like, you know, for raw that works, but in the gear does not go well. Uh, so mm-hmm. we're, we gotta, we gotta play around with that for the gear. Um, but yeah, I, like, I mean, like, so we have a few and Kate's a good bencher, Kate, you know, at 84 benches. Um, she said, I think like 192 in the, in the gym. And she, I think she said 187 in a meet. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're both pretty good benchers that do that, but most of our people are soft touch. Um, I mean, to the extreme of someone like Marie, Marie's a 72. Um, she benches 200. And when you watch her bench, it's, it, it, you almost wonder if it touches sometimes. Um, and it does, but like it, you know, she's such a soft touch. There, there is a pretty drastic difference there, but I would say 95% or more of our people um, are a soft touch or at least not like caving their chest in with the bar. What about you, Zach? Hmm. I would say that 95% of my lifters all soft touch because it's easy to teach that it's, it's a pretty uniform principle that applies. Uh, the easiest example of that is, uh, is uh, Cindy Tilton, who's by far, I'd say, my best bencher on my team. Uh, Cindy's a world champion uh, at Bench Nationals in August. She, as in uh, coming in as a brand new M2, entering the M2 at Super, she hit uh, 125, 275. And uh, for some reason, we're still trying to figure out why that third attempt was easier than her opener. Uh, I don't know how that happened, uh, but it did. So she's going to be going to Tokyo, and we're we're on the quest to to, to have her be, uh, you know, a a fifty year old three hundred pound bencher, and I think that's going to be awesome. But Cindy's uber uber soft with her touch. I mean, she comes down and just barely barely touches when she comes down, and uh, she's done quite well with that. Uh, we've done a lot of modifications with her and just like everyone of you have said the one that we're still working on is learning how to use that leg drive she's got very short legs so uh you guys uh, if i get to see you uh next weekend in connecticut uh you'll get to see her uh, put on a little bit of a show i think hopefully get some big numbers uh before she heads to tokyo this summer and she's super soft tough touch now the other on the other end of the spectrum i've got Probably one lifter, uh, John Vandermenden, there from New Hampshire, who, you know, John uh, has been uh, working on his bench for a couple of years now. And he took some time off from coaching for me to kind of, he's going back to school to be a PT. And I'm super pumped for him following his dream. Uh, but he's recently benched, uh, I believe, 205 with a pause, you know, comp drip, comp setup, like everything you know in his basement and 
his his net, like his strength is very strong, and he's one of those guys that does pump and dump, and he has learned very very well how to optimize that leg drive and throwing that bar off of his chest. So I'd say vast majority, ninety five percent of my lifters all pretty much soft touch, and I think it creates a, a nice finesse and a better ability to to have good technical control over that bar path rather than relying on your body to be the break and by the break I mean like the shock absorber when the bar lands um, so I think that but there are exceptions to every rule and there's are enigmas out there but John's a, a young 120 uh, going to be probably a 120 plus for life probably but he's the exception to that rule so I think by and large the the, the easiest answer is probably soft touch as a, as a rule but you know Unless they show me proficiency and exception, you know, exception and you know, to the other, to the, as far as like they're, they're coming down, it's always under control, but it's whether they use that sink and, and, and leg drive to get it off. That'd probably be the shortest answer. Yeah. I literally, I have nobody who sinks it in. Um, I've had one lifter that did it, but he, he weighs, uh, about 140 fucking pounds and he's been lifting for about a year. So we, we ended that pretty quick. Um, but like, I don't have any bigger guys either. So like, I don't have any one twenties or one twenty pluses. Um, but I, yeah, I, you know, I guess if somebody came in with a big bench and that's how they did it, I would just let it fly. Keeping somebody to bench, they're going to soft. Right. Um, we, I, we, I always, I always mention like, we have a guy, uh, Carlos Reyes trains here at the gym. Um, I don't coach him, but he trains here pretty regularly He's here this morning. And I mean, Carlos, dumps it like to the point where it looks like his rib cage is going to break and Carlos bench is 540 at 230 so I mean like it clearly works for him but he was we were talking about it the other day like when, once he figured out leg drive it added like 40 pounds to his bench I mean and to like I said to someone who's already was an exceptional bencher he figured out the leg drive and boom 40 pounds um, and like I said I mean 540 at 230s are pretty insane number uh, 540 at any weight is a pretty good is at any You're right. That's a good squat. Forget bench. Um, and, you know, when you watch him, like, I mean, he he dumps it right there, like right into his chest. His chest collapses. And then once he gets a press command, and he gets it pretty quick because the bar is motionless. He, he just dumps it so fast is that uh, his legs, he, he hammers the bar up and the bar just flies off his chest. So let's get into a little uh, – a little like programming type stuff for bench. Um, let's talk like frequency and kind of how you guys would, you know, maybe even pick a weakness that you identify and how you go about like attacking it or something like something that's pretty common anyways. Um, I feel the bench is pretty easy with this. Uh, so we'll start with you, Ryan. Um, I think the big thing that I probably just really kind of figured out in like the last year or so was the running joke here was that like we're a deadlift gym and not a bench gym. And uh, Jim Kip used to make fun of me that everyone in Connecticut could deadlift, but no one could bench. Um, and I think we finally figured it out. And the big thing for us was frequency. Um, we went from especially in meat prep, not in the off season necessarily, but in meat prep, we, we went from benching, um, you know, one to two, one to two times a week to basically every day. Um, and that doesn't mean the volumes any, any more excessive. Uh, there's probably a little bit less volume each day than we would have if we did over two days. Uh, but we're benching every day in meat prep 
And um, like in the last year, we've had seven women go over 200 pounds and uh, three guys go over 400, not four guys go over 400. So, I mean, like it, it was definite, it, it was definitely a big uh, change for us to add in that frequency. Um, and uh, I think at least on a very small scale, um, when I was trying to think of like what we need to do more for benching, was we did not do any arm, like direct arm work for years. And I remember walking around like nationals a couple years ago and everyone that was a big bencher had big arms. So I came home and I was like, okay, we're all, we're all going to start doing buys and tries all the time. I think that helped. Um, maybe not a direct carryover, you know, cause it's not the same kind of the weight that we're moving, but it just helps stabilize the bar a little bit better. And hopefully with the lockout, a little bit more on the triceps. Um, and just and holding heavier weight more often on accessory to kind of work um, instead of just doing like three sets of ten we you know we started really pushing um, floor press and incline bench press and de- decline bench and feet up and all these things like where we were pushing it up to um, you know maybe not a max but something you know maybe like an RP eight or nine um, and people just getting used to handling heavier weights and it's it's had a big carryover for our training so when you're breaking up your so the higher frequency um, how are the days structured do you have like one heavy day one light day always mixing grips How's that? Um, so like I said in the off season it's a little bit different in the off season we'll keep it usually to two two bench days a week um, I don't want to get too high frequency off season I want to try to work on other things then so in the off season we're gonna do one comp day um, and just the way that I program is um, a rotation-based kind of thing. So one week is that like that heavy dynamic work that we've talked about before where it's moderately heavyweight in the bar, but we're trying to really press it fast. Um, one day is going to be a much more higher volume day that we um, hopefully can increase the weight as we push the volume up to. And then a third day will be heavy, but like heavy could be – you know, a heavy set of four. I'm not saying that we're maxing out every few weeks. Like it might be a heavy set of four this week and, you know, maybe six weeks from now it'll be a heavy triple. Um, the second day is going to be focused on what they're bad at. Um, so, you know, if, if they need more, if they need more help off the chest, like I said, we like to, before we talk, might be talking about those like five second pauses or, um, I really like, uh, the American camber bar from, uh, Lee FTS. It's a neutral grip bar with a, about a two inch camber. Uh, so we'll have them go a little bit below their chest actually. So the touch and work on that. Um, and then in meat prep, like I said, we'll get up to four days a week of benching, but then it's, it's usually one comp day, um, two days to work on their specific weaknesses. And then the third day is going to be pretty close to a comp day. We'll go a little bit closer grip, um, but everything else is going to be pretty close to their comp bench other than moving their hands and maybe two or three finger widths. Okay. So Ryan, how much uh, in your actual, in, in your meat prep and all, all stages of meat prep mm-hmm. uh, programming do dumbbell work do you do? A lot. Um, I didn't even really think to mention that, but we do some kind of a dumbbell press all the time. Um, right now, like I said, in the off season for most of my lifters, one of the things that I do is like on their squat and deadlift day, I'll actually throw in, um, 
three to five sets of super light, you know, something they could probably do for 30 reps, but we'll do like 15 reps, like three sets of 15 of a dumbbell bench or dumbbell incline bench, just something to get a little, a little extra work in, but something that's not going to beat them up at all. And then on their bench day, so on their competition bench day, we'll generally do um, some kind of a dumbbell variation, either incline, uh, shoulder, decline, floor press, something like that. And then on their second day, where we're usually doing some variation of the bench, uh, usually when I'll throw in more of like an actual dumbbell bench press. So we're doing it, you know, even in the off season, we're probably doing dumbbells um, moderately heavy two days a week and easy two days a week. Um, so we're pushing dumbbells a lot. And how heavy do you push them? Um, we'll go, we'll go as heavy as like, like a top set of six. Um, one of the rep schemes I'm kind of playing around with right now and it's, it seemed to like it, um, this will do like a heavy six with dumbbells, drop the weight roughly like 20%, hit another set of 12, drop it another 20%, hit a set of 20. So we're getting a lot of working with the dumbbells on that, but we're, we're actually touching some pretty heavy weight. Um, you know, we've got some girls that are dumbbell pressing, um, 60, 65, 70 pounds for sets of six. Um, and my guys are bugging me to buy heavier dumbbells because my hundreds aren't carrying it anymore. Um, I was going to say, you have uh, guys, you are, are you running into problems with your guys? And I don't mean from their perspective. I mean, from your perspective, uh, problems with guys not getting a good enough range of motion. <laughs> the, the size of the, bar, the dumbbells is interfering with the range of motion. Yeah. So like I said, right now, the biggest dumbbell I have is a hundred. So the hundreds aren't too bad. Um, we've got a couple guys that have gone to other gyms and pressed like one forties fairly easily. Uh, the problem with the one forties is it does shorten that range of motion. Cause they're just so big at that point that it becomes more trying to figure out how to control the dumbbell than necessarily working on the press. So with those kind of guys, I'll, I'll, I really like, um, like I said, we'll go to, um, a neutral grip bar, uh, the American camera bar that's got the little extra, the little extra range of motion, or even like the old school McDonald bar, which I have one at the gym, um, and try to work that little extra range, um, instead of having to worry about holding the dumbbells. What about your, uh, programming over there, Zach? Do you find the same thing with the frequency? Uh, I would say so. We're, we follow that kind of Norwegian slash German model where we're, we're doing doing some sort of a, a pressing motion every day. So the only exception to that, I would say would probably be if I have like one or two athletes on a five day program. Um, but the rest are all on threes and fours. If we're on a three day program, we're doing, we're, we're benching every day. If we're on a four day program, we're doing some sort of a pressing motion all four days. Uh, I tend to vary the application of dumbbell versus barbell, uh, bilateral versus unilateral, um, stabilization based versus, um, you know, volume based. And it, it really is truly individualized. And I, I think, you know, I'm speaking for myself. That I, I think that's what that our athletes like about our programming is that our program is truly, is truly individualized. There's no, you know, 
pay us in advance for 12 weeks. We're going to send you a, 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 a template uh, with no individual variation or anything. Everything is custom to the people. So if we've got you know, a variation that we think is working and it's not working, we're going to switch it out. We're going to put in something uh, different that specifically, you know, addresses and fixes the problem. That's where we, you know, I think all three of us are in agreement. That's what we value about our education are the fact that this is what we went to school for, that we can analyze the mechanics, we can analyze the exercise prescription, talk about the biomechanics of the movement or the uh, muscle, uh, you know, use or disuse of in, in whatever problem we're having. And then as far as, you know, what we do moving forward, it changes, right? So if we've got somebody that's perpetually having a, a problem with one arm being stronger than the other, guess what? They're going to have, they're going to fall in love with dumbbells. And if they're not at a gym that's got dumbbells heavy enough, we're going to go find one uh, that's, that's heavy enough because that's what we're going to do to fix that right side versus left side, you know, uh, strength uh, margin. So that, you know, we do whatever is needed. So generally speaking, they're going to do a bar movement two out of the four days a week, uh, sometimes three out of the four days. Uh, the fourth day, we're, we're going to hit uh, some sort of a pressing movement, right? We could do floor press or uh, I like floor presses with both dumbbells and barbells. You know, if you're doing floor press and you're a guy and you're using dumbbells, you know, and you're a relatively decent power lifter, you're going to have to have somebody there helping you to help those big mm-hmm. dumbbells get on your legs. And that presents a problem. But I think there's value in doing the dumbbell floor press, uh, just like I think there's value in doing the the uh, barbell floor press. Um, we're, we're constantly changing it up, you know, flat versus incline versus decline. Uh, I'm finding it more and more difficult the more athletes I have from various states across the country in finding these athletes access to gyms that have a decline press without having them modify the flat bench to do it because I'm finding that more and more gyms are seeing the decline bench press as a liability risk. So more gyms are getting rid of them. So if they have, if they have them, I'm programming in decline bench uh, a lot. But I have, I would say half of my athletes are at gyms, even lifting gyms, barbell clubs that do not have decline benches. So um, you know we're do- we're we're switching it up. I'm switching up uh, grips uh, probably every meso phase on every day of the program. We're switching up, um, you know, uh, flat versus incline, decline multiple times in a mesocycle. And, and we vary our percentages, you know, based on what the program and the body's react, you know, the athlete's body, the body's reaction to the program is telling us. So, I mean, it's so individual varied, but if you compared, um, you know, Cindy Tilton's program to Giovanna Ortega's program to, um, you know, Dan Takic's program to Alex Zipke's program, I mean, those, their bench training is so different, uh, not just because they're at various stages in their bench, uh, training and their bench efficiency, but because different athletes need different things. So Cindy Tilton's a, you know, five foot six, five, five, uh, super heavyweight world champion bench presser. Dan Takix is, you know, six, four, you know, 205. So, you know, their bench training is very, very different and the way that we apply their leverages and, and change the programming in relationship to those leverages varies quite a bit. So, I feel bad not having a, a straightforward answer to you, but it, it 
it really, it varies a lot, but we're doing a lot of benching. I think I'm not different than you guys when it comes to that. We're doing it every day of the program with the exception of a couple athletes that have a five-day program. They have a five-day program. A lot of times that uh, I've kind of adapted that fifth day to be kind of either, depending upon the athlete's build, either a bodybuilding day or a kind of a metabolic conditioning type day. Uh, you know, and the individual differences thing, I think you bring up a really good point. Cause like for me, so the one thing that I look for, like regardless of everybody's size and shape is where their elbow position is when the bar is on their chest. If their elbow is lower than their shoulders, their pecs are going to take a beating and they need to be really freaking strong. So they're going to get way more pec accessory stuff and even bench variation stuff that focuses on the pecs more just because basically their pecs are at a deficit, even at a competition bench press. Um, and for those people, we're going to try to maximize that arch and widen that grip as high as humanly possible, just to try to get them a little bit better of a leverage. Um, for the other people whose elbows are even with their shoulder a little bit up, obviously it changes things um, a little bit. But yeah, like we bench in the off season, same as you, Ryan, we bench two days a week. And this is where I'll use a lot of dumbbells and, and stuff like that too. So that like volume's not really decreasing that much. We're just kind of changing how we're getting that, uh, that overall volume. But then as you know, say we're 12 weeks out roughly while well, adding that third day, just so I'm not uh, increasing volume too much, too quick. And then about eight weeks out, they'll get four days of benching. And within those four days, it's exactly that finding a weakness within, within the lifter. If we need to hammer the pecs, a lot more wider grip bench type variations. Um, you know, but even with that said, we don't forget about like the other parts. So there might still be one. I've been using bigger boards too, Zach, like you told me to. So like stuff like that, that works on the top end, handling heavier weights, like you were saying too, Ryan. Um, I change grips a lot. So like, you know, just the grip changes the emphasis of the movement quite a bit. So, you know, 81 centimeters, it's primarily pecs. That medium grip bench, it's everything is equally involved. And then as you get closer, it's more triceps and delts. So depending on the lifter's weakness, like if somebody's elbows are flaring out off the chest, like clearly they need to work on their tricep strength. So they're going to get a lot more close grip stuff. Then we'll work it out to a medium grip to get everything working together and then we'll we'll bring it back out wide for their um for their competition um but i feel like bench it's it's kind of simple it is what it is it's you know we do a ton of legless benching like that's in there off season close to a meet um like i keep it in i just have huge benefit to just having them learn how to drive that weight with their upper body and building that like that upper body strength so that'll be in there regardless like if we're benching four days i'll take a day and just put their feet up saves their back a little bit too i guess if we're touching heavier weights controls loads because they can't push as much so it can save their shoulders over time too um but yeah like i don't think there's like anything fancy you know, with the bench press, I think it's kind of like, you know, the recurring theme of this podcast was you kind of just every lifter kind of figures it for themselves how they need to do it. You know, if they're over tucking or too wide or something like Spoto press seems to clear it up because they just can't the ball and control it from that position. So I think like bench is kind of easy to clear up some of that stuff. You can get away with some other technical stuff and um, more easily than not, I think. Kevin, I think one thing we didn't touch on, and maybe this is what we'll, we'll cover 
and if we do a 2.0 on this, is that uh, we talked, uh, I think it was, I don't know, it was one of the first podcasts we did, the Coaches Corners, was on board pressing. And I was just uh, thinking the same thing. Yeah, we didn't even touch on that, but like there is still that the pervasive, uh, I'll call it a theory, I'll give it validity, the theory that the board pressing is irrelevant if you're not an equipped venture and, you know, uh, I think it's crap, but I think that there's enough con- conjectural evidence to show that it's it's, it's valuable and, and, and holds a, a place in training. And I have my, I mean, we do every one of my lifts. If you're one of my lifters, we're going to board press. And if you don't have access to boards, we're going to, we're going to check out your financial situation. And I'm going to give mm-hmm. you uh, a, uh, an actual shopping list to go to Lowe's or Home Depot. And we're going to make one. And if you, if you got access to scrap lumber, we're going to make one. And if you don't, then we're going to, we're going to find somebody who's got some, uh, 10 pound plates from the gym and we're going to stack up 10 pound plates and use those. And you're going to be doing 30 pound, three board presses, 20 pound, two board presses. And, you know, 10 pound, one board presses I mean, on your chest. I mean, we're, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, we wrap uh, wrist wraps or towels around the bar. So you perfect. can actually get some pretty thickness with like clothing. Um, and it doesn't even require like assistance with it either. You can just wrap it right in the middle of the bar. Yeah. I mean, I'll let Ryan talk because y'all know what I think about it. So I, um, I mean, I prefer actual boards. It's just, there's a different feel. Um, we do have bench blocks at the gym and I have a few guys that I train online that have Love the bench those. blocks. Those, those they work really well. Um, especially when you're by yourself or if you're in a gym that doesn't maybe want to want you bringing in, uh, some lumber into their, a commercial style gym. Um, I do prefer, like I said, I do prefer the actual boards, but when that's something that I didn't really say, like in meat prep, we board press every week. Um, what in last meet, the last meet that some of my lifters did was um, uh, December 1st. And that was the first meet in a while that I said, you know what, let me, I'm going to change a few things. I'm going to get rid of the board pressing for a while. I work on more of like the full range pressing. And um, not that we had a poor bench day by anyone, but I think we all could have benched better. Um, and I look back and like, like, you know what, went right back to the board. So we do um, like 12 weeks off on meet. We'll alternate weeks. We'll go two board one week, one board the next week, and we'll just go two, one, two, one, two, one for about six weeks. And then I'll run a certain scheme with the two board until we either get to the meet or we get to a point where the two boards kind of tapped out. And that seems to help a ton. Um, you know, we're getting more volume in with, you know, even if it's not an, an overload, you know, maybe we're not throwing extra weight on the bar, but we're using 90% of their full range bench and we're doing it for like three sets of four um, pretty, pretty easily where like, you know, if you're doing that to your chest, that would be a terrible day. Um, so we use it, like I said, I mean, the last 12 weeks, we're using it every week. Um, in the off season, I'll use it a little bit less, but every once in a while I'll throw it in there. We'll be like, you know, we'll, and we'll work up to a heavy two board. Um, I like to see where people are at. Like if they're, if their two board is, you know, exponentially stronger than their one, then I know we need to work on the one or, uh, you know, every once in a while you get someone whose two board might actually be their weak point. Um, and then we need to work on some stuff there too. So 
I, I agree. I love boards. I don't understand why it became such a weird thing for raw lifters to not do it. Um, I mean, for sure, for shirt adventures, I'm definitely going to use boards too, like just working our way down to the chest. Um, and I love what you do Zach with the, you know, two board and then like, and then yank that one out and go to one board. I, I threw that in after seeing that from you. Um, with the board ladders. Yeah. ladders. So I, you know, I started doing where I would go like, okay, let's hit a triple to a two board and then, you know, that looked good. Okay. Let's move it down to one board. I would say, okay, now I would look at it and be like, okay, let's hit a double and I'll have them go, you know, the first one to the two board, the second one to the one board. Um, right. And I think that works way better, uh, at least in the shirt, than um, just hitting the full set to a single board uh, when you're trying to work your way down. Because the second rep seems to always be better than the first anyway. Uh, it- it it uh, it works great in the shirt, and it every one of my equip lifters. That's we we board ladder. I mean, their working sets are board ladders. That's I mean, and I'll talk. We can talk about this more off the air because I don't want to give everything away. But um, like that, yeah, I use board ladders as working sets uh, whenever with my equip lifters. So, but when. But even with the raw lifters, uh, that is that that is probably probably my number one major accessory i mean we we board ladder as a major accessory for half the cycle because in my mind i never ever ever want a lifter to get a bench in competition past the sticking point and not lock it out right and i think that's one one of the couple of the best benefits of a board press, particularly a board ladder, is that it teaches the lifter to be stronger and have more resilience uh, the higher in the range of motion they go, or the higher the ascent in the range of the motion of the, of a lift. And, and I, we have seen so much uh, benefit from that. The second uh, benefit, I would say, is it teaches position proper uh, arm, particularly elbow and shoulder position at different uh, points in the descent and ascent. So if a lifter is going to be hitting like a heavy, heavy, uh, like a two board, then I want to know, I want to see what their elbows look like when they're touching that two board. I want to see what position their shoulders are in when they're touching that two board. Uh, same thing with the one and a half and a, and a one board. I, I think that depending upon the, the, the weight class of the lifter, you know, how elite they are, what their arch looks like, where the wrist position is, uh, how heavy they're going when percentage wise, uh, if it's an overload or an over grip or a moderate grip, uh, that tells me a lot about how mature they are and how much they're mastering the positioning. Uh, sometimes to mess with them, I'll even change the grip on those and I'll do a like heavy two board with a moderate grip. So I will increase the board height, but also increase the range of motion by uh, decreasing the grip. Mm -hmm. So I'll be able to do more pec and more tricep concentration uh, while teaching them positioning. Granted, the positioning is slightly different because the grip is different, but still teaching them that keeping, keeping that positioning and being able to get them to go especially heavy. I've, I've gotten uh, a great example is uh, Brittany Robbie from uh, University of Iowa. She has been able now to triple her current 1RM 
onto a we, we're doing it now at a two board and we're going to be able to do triples at one and a half boards at her current one RM rock so if, I, if that what that tells me is if we can do that we're already getting stronger now Brittany is an equipped lifter so we're doing this partially for the transfer that it's going to come whenever we get her in a shirt but I mean I see value for it in raw training as well I think, you know, the thing that people miss a lot on the bench press is the sticking point for everybody varies, right? So, like, that's where I think the benefit of the varying boards can come in. Like, if you can hit it at the point that they need to strengthen, how could it not have carryover? Um, what I really like to use the boards for is, let's say somebody needs to build up their triceps, right? So maybe we do the first block because, you know, it's after a meet or something. We're using lighter loads. We do like a close grip Larson press or something. But then in the next block, I'll use like a two board and do a close grip two board Larson press. So now I can overload the triceps a lot more than I could if I touch it. And then I'll have them put their feet on the ground and maybe do a close grip bench press. And then we'll bring that two board back for the next block do a two board close grip bench press and at this point a lot of times they're touching more than they've touched before on a competition bench press with a close grip to a two board and you know they're now you're seeing when they go on bench press the technique looks better the grinding out bench is a lot better um you know because you're loading it appropriately um you know the boards allow you to do that if you're trying to target a weak muscle group it just it uh, in the bench press and in the bench press movement it's allowing you to actually load it with weights that you would be loading their competition bench press with so the triceps can catch up to the pecs or the front delts or whatever the uh the thing you're trying to work on is and i that's where i have found the i think the biggest use of boards overall in my program and then obviously closer to a competition it's you're feeling heavier weights with your competition grip competent you know full arch all mm-hmm. that stuff um Earlier, earlier in your career, earlier in your career, Ryan, did you, what was your opinion of them? Have you always been using them, or did you start? I started. I started with them years ago. Um, I mean, we've talked about this, like I was, you know, big, big West Side and elite FTS kind of guy for a long time. So very early on, we did boards all the time, and even like some pretty high boards, you know, like going four board stuff. And then um, I fell, I fell into the trap of like, oh, we're raw lifters, we don't need this. So I got rid of it for a while, and um, I didn't see the improvement in bench like I thought we would from getting rid of it and doing more full range. So I put them back in uh, probably about three years ago, put them back in like occasionally. And then about two years ago, I was like full time where, you know, they're in all the time now. Um, And I can't imagine going back. You know, I mean, things change all the time. Uh, you know, and your, tra- and your training changes, but I've seen such an improvement with the board pressing that I can't imagine getting rid of it again. Yeah, and I think, you know, you can't, you got to pay attention to all parts of the lift, right? If you're just doing comp bench and you're a wide grip, big arch, there's definitely going to be some some holes that you're, you know, your upper body strength is going to have just it's such a small range of motion it's a specific targeted muscle group at a specific targeted angle and you're definitely going to leave weight on the platform and like there's a reason why like you know to bring it full circle like that infant press is a reason why they were using it as like a rehab exercise like you're training angles that you typically don't train and being strong in those angles just like those other angles builds a resilient lifter and like bench press can fuck you up like that's probably the one thing that like my lifters get the most is like 
pec discomfort. It's so, I think adding in that stuff has helped. Um, just, you know, for those reasons, just hitting, hitting angles. Um, we're going to, let's wrap it up there. It's been almost an hour and a half. Alyssa's going to hate me for going on. Um, but we'll go around, let everybody know where they can find you on the internet and, uh, we'll sign off here. We'll start with you, Ryan. Uh, Instagram team GPT, uh, online. Our website is gleesonperformance.com. Like Zach, we're, we're redoing a lot of it. Uh, so it's still up, but it's a work in progress. Um, or my email is Ryan at gleesonperformance.com. And Zach, uh, it's, uh, coach Z Cooper, uh, Instagram or Cooper training Institute on Instagram on uh, Facebook, Cooper Training Institute. And then uh, we've got Twitter too. I don't know if you guys do the tw- uh, Twitter or not, but we've been trying to be better about that. Actually, Ryan has been great. He does like a, a quick plug for Ryan's Twitter. If you're not following Ryan on Twitter, you probably should because for free, every single week he's giving warm-ups. He's giving uh, good accessory lifts for uh, each of the major big three. Uh, so on Twitter for us, we're Coach Z Cooper, or you can follow us on uh, at, at Cooper Training. Uh, and, and yeah, so the website's getting redone. So Mac designs has got his work cut out for me. <laughs> hey, you can follow me, KW can our team precision powerlifting systems. Stay strong, Boston.